Good evening, TDN listeners, and welcome to this week in interview. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're listening to me on tdnradio.net, watching us on Facebook, on TDN TV, or on TDN Facebook page, or this week in interview page, it's a pleasure to have you. If you're listening to me from Dominica on RVR Jams, which airs on GGPlay Channel 59, welcome as well. Once again, I really appreciate you tuning in every week. Those who are my regular listeners, you make the time to tune in every week. And for that, I am grateful. And if tonight is the first time that you're listening to this week in interview, I intend to make you a regular listener. So sit back and enjoy the hour that you spend in with us. For the last two weeks, I have been bringing you information about the International Airport Project that the government of Dominica is undertaking in the Wesley area. Uh, two weeks ago, I brought you an interview with two citizens of Wesley who are affected by the acquisition of land that the government um, is undertaking to, to, to do that project. Uh, and, and the method and the process and the challenges that the people are facing because of that. And then last week, I had an attorney on, and he laid out the law eminent domain, which gives the government the right to take private land for, for, for public good, for, for public purposes, and what rights do the people have or, or don't have in terms of um, defending that. So we had that um, very uh, in-depth discussion on Saturday, gone, this organization in Dominica called NJAM, National Joint Action Movement, had, they hosted a, how you want to call it, a panel discussion, a, a, a symposium on the airport. Very, very, very impressive. They got um, quite a few professionals to come and to present in their own field and their experience, geologists, um, airport engineers, and so on. And so I don't know how many of you heard it, but even if you heard it, there was so much information that I decided that I would take excerpts from that and present to you. Full credits goes to Dominican News Online, DNO Online, because they are the ones who, who hosted it. TDN Radio and TDN TV carried it live as well. Tim Dura hosted it and did an excellent job and everybody was, was just so professional. It is amazing the kind of talent that Dominicans have. It is sad that we don't get to express that talent in the development of our country. We, we use it, everybody else benefits from it. But you, you, you will agree with me when you, when you listen to what I have lined up tonight. I, I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, when I come back, uh, we, uh, I, I'm going to launch into it excerpts from um, the presentation that was hosted by NJAM on Saturday. Let's listen to the CARICOM and FEM, and we'll be right back. Distant lands, our forefathers came, 
心事情一分章，心包定情。Through battles waged and fought, through victory and pain, by test of their courage, our freedom was gained. In homage to those who be born.
All right. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you enjoy the CARICOM and I hope you still enjoy the CARICOM and film as much as I do. I say good evening to the folks who are watching on Facebook Live on, on TDN Radio um, Facebook page and also on This Week in Interview Facebook page. I, I, I see some shout outs in there. Um, uh, yeah, so people say they love the song. I'm going to try to interact a little more on social media. Sometimes it's a little more difficult when I have a guest. But tonight I don't have a, a live guest. As I told you on Saturday, the National Joint Action Movement hosted uh, a presentation. And they managed to put together a panel of really, really expert, local Dominican experts, in airport engineers, pilots, and geologists, um, the social um, guys, they had um, local um, contractors, and everybody did uh, a presentation in their area of expertise. They had um, also um, urban planning in, in the form of um, Isaac Baptist. And what I did was, um, the whole thing lasted about a little more than three hours. So I picked out three of the presentations and decided that that would be my show tonight. Because if you missed it, I really want you to, to hear the level of expertise that we have in Dominica that's just begging to be available to, to the development of Dominica to assist. And also, I want you to recognize how serious a project is of that magnitude in Dominica and judge for yourself if you think that the government of Dominica is approaching the construction of the International Airport in a serious way. So what I'm going to do is the government did not, they were invited to send a representative to present the government view. What is the status of the project? What are the plans and so on? But the, the, the government did not send a rep. So in the place of that, um, Tim Duran, who was the host of that, and also I'm going to give full credits to DNO, Dominican News Online, because they were the ones who hosted it. And then they gave streams to different media outlets, TDN Radio and TDN TV carried it live. If you're listening to me on, on the radio, on RVF Jams or on TDNRadio.net, um, and you can get to a, to a place where you can watch it, either on TDN TV or on This Week in Interview Facebook page, or TDN Radio Facebook page. I would encourage you to do so, not only because you're going to see my face, but also some of the presentation had um, PowerPoints that go with it, so it would enhance your the information that you get. I totally think it worked. It works audio, but if you can see the video to help as well. So the first portion I want to bring is that a collage was made of different clippings from the government that sort of lays out the government case over the time and puts the whole airport project in, in perspective. And so that's the first clip I'm going to play. And when that is done, I'm going to um, bring on the, the presentation by um, the engineer, airport engineer, who also happens to be a commercial pilot, um, his presentation, um, and, all, and then finally, um, uh, from the village of Wesley, what is the experience that's happening on the ground that you can now compare what the government says 
what the people of Wesley are experiencing um, based on the background of what should happen on the construction and design of a big project such as an international airport. So let's launch right into it. The first clip sort of lays out um, the government um, case that they are in fact planning to do an international airport in the Wesley area. National Airport. These are not pie in the sky promises, ladies and gentlemen. We have the designs and we have the financing. We are merely waiting for the mandate from you tomorrow to get the projects started. And take note, Madam Speaker, an airport development fund has been established as of May 2017 and has been capitalized with U.S. $10 million for a citizenship by investment program. And government has taken the decision that an amount of U.S. $5 million will, will be paid into, the, into that fund. The balance in that fund as of September 30, 2020 was $239. Today, ladies and gentlemen, in the year, in the year of our Lord 2019, I can announce to you that the government of the People's Republic of China sent a special envoy to me last week to confirm that China will provide the financing to build the international airport for Dominica. Um, and of course, we have firm commitment from the government of the People's Republic of China uh, for the provision of financing for the airport. Um, so far uh, this month, we finalized the revised feasibility study, which is a prerequisite um, for accessing um, the funding from the government of China. Um, this, is, this is a 172 page document. Um, uh, we utilize the services of a consultant and um, we reviewed it internally under consultation with other experts in respect to airport construction. And that was um, forwarded to the um, Chinese authorities. But that understanding will continues. Um, we have um, uh, we have restarted our negotiations um, for the land. All of the lands were surveyed, all of the lands were checked. Um, we have started negotiations with landowners and property owners. Uh, and in the next few weeks, we will start payments to some of the landowners who have concluded negotiations. Uh, with the government um, negotiating team. The other action that has to be taken um, is the um, more in-depth um, geotechnical uh, studies, a survey. And so the first sec first portion, first area we'll be acquiring will be the area where we have to do the geotechnical studies because that will require the um, drilling of some very large walls, very large holes. And, and so I want to thank the government of the People's Republic of China for this um, and for their commitment to financing it because we all know um, that it'd be impossible um, for us as a nation for us as a nation to finance the airport by ourselves. And, and so to have a friend and a developing partner like China, you know, um, who who is who's committed to assisting us with the construction of the airport is, is certainly a wonderful gift. 
um, to the people of Dominica. So I really want to underscore this. this is, I'm certainly grateful to, to them because that was always the government. So I'm concerned about the, the level of cooperation that we may get or the level of resistance that we may get. And I can say thus far, there has been absolutely no resistance from the part of the property owners. And, and so we look forward to making the first payments. I believe it will be about $4 million that have been negotiated so far with some property owners. And, and so $4 million very soon will be <coughs> circulating in the economy of West End. Just a quick update, um, I visited the Jobotin site um, in West End, Manigan, um, where we have uh, begun the process of constructing some 37 um, homes for individuals who will be impacted by the construction of international aid. Um, so this new development will feature some 24 two-bedrooms and nine three-bedrooms and four four-bedrooms, um, providing resilient homes uh, for those who will be affected. Uh, we look forward to a completion date of August 2021. 20, um, we have also set aside 161 acres of land that are earmarked uh, for agriculture. And there are some 12 squatter farmers um, on Jogurtin. I know there was an issue about the clearing of lands and the impact that had on some farmers. I had the good fortune to meet with some of the farmers on my visit on Monday, and I gave them the assurance that one, the government will provide them assistance for the crops um, that they have been cultivating on state land, and we'll also enter into a formal lease agreement with them. On state, on state lands to allow them to continue their farming. Uh, we have also issued a contract with a local firm that is Ocean Kai uh, to engage in the, in the conduct of the environmental impact assessment, which is important. The international airport site selected by the Dominica Labour Party is directly between the sites recommended to the DFP by Alexander Gibbon 1988, which, according to the Halker Group in 2002, were affected by serious obstacle infringements. Over the past three years, millions of dollars have been spent on what the Prime Minister says is a feasibility study, presented to the Chinese to facilitate funding. But significant pieces of the airport planning matrix remain missing. No capital and operating cost, no airport master plan, no airport layout plan, no site selection study. No environment impact analysis, no geotechnical study and no land use study. 411 acres of land have been acquired for the IE in the Woodford Hill slash Wesley area, including a number of commercial and residential properties in Wesley. The Prime Minister said these lands would be will be passed to the developer in December 2020 to facilitate commencement of construction in the first quarter of 2021. China will help with the international airport, but it is no longer the main financier as the Prime Minister has been indicating since November 2019. The IA will now be financed by passport sales through a developer that secured responsibility for this massive public sector project without public tender. The developer is Montreal Management Company of Lebanese, Anthony Hayden, with whom the Prime Minister shares private control of billions of dollars belonging to the people from the sale of their passports under the CBI housing option. These funds are being held illegally with no accountability outside of Dominica's consolidated fund. It appears that the International Airport Financing Plan is for Dominica to take loan of its own money from Hayden and then pay him the loan amount with interest. All right, listeners, I hope, um, I hope you got the gist of it. Um, 
there's not much more available. Um, this is a hodgepodge of different um, clippings that's out there because such a huge project. Uh, and the government has gone on and acquired people's land without having the basics of a plan in place. And, and so people are, people are really worried because the construction of an international airport, the planning, the studies takes years, years and years. St. Vincent is the last country that did an international airport in, in the Caribbean. And, and you hear that St. Vincent's studies took three years, five years in the making. And so how is it that this government seems to be shooting from the hip on such a huge project in a country like Dominica, where we have to be so careful and so judicious with how we spend our resources. I'm going to switch to the next clip. Um, a homegrown um, airport engineer, you know, somebody that we can all be proud of because he is operating on the world stage. You will hear for yourself. And he outlined from his experience, barely making reference to the Dominica project. But from his experience, what should go into the planning of an international airport, especially in a country like Dominica with such a fragile ecosystem? And so let's listen to that clip. It's a little longer. It's about half an hour in length, but it is worth every second of it. And then when we come back, um, just bear in mind the, the back and forth that we heard from the prime minister that passport sales are funded now and China is funded now and we have a design that's ready to go and no, we don't have a design and we've contracted somebody um, to to do this and we've contracted somebody to do that. And some some company in Dominica is probably maybe a one-man show that they've contracted to do the environmental impact assessment on an international airport. I mean, I'm, I'm all for using local local resources. But this is a government that con that brings laborers from outside, truck drivers from outside, every single profession you can think of, they bring it from outside of Dominica. And when we are trying to do an international airport that is on a global scale, we think that we can get a small two by four company that should have that will have the resources to do what is required for an environmental impact assessment. I am going to post the link to this presentation on um, this weekend interview Facebook page. I encourage you to make the time to listen to the entire presentation. Every single one of them is stellar. I just could not have all of them because I only have an hour. So let's jump into the second clip uh, and listen to Irvin Baptist and his presentation that he made from his experience in designing and working on airports. My name is Irvin Baptist, and I've been invited to present some information related to the current discussion topic. Before I begin, I sincerely hope all of the participants and listeners
perhaps admin can tell us um, or indicate to us if there's an uh, having a wonderful evening and i'd like to extend a thank you to those who sought my consultation given my extensive background of working in the aviation industry the intent of this presentation is to inform the residents of the commonwealth of dominica and hopefully provide knowledge so that the citizens can develop a generalized understanding of the industry standard practices and processes involved when undertaking a very large-scale critical transportation infrastructure project, such as an international airport. Again, this presentation is not all-encompassing, and there are many more aspects and details that I will not need to go to for the sake of the audience. The intent, again, is to provide an objective, informative discussion to make the public better aware, thereby equipping you with the knowledge to ask the right questions and make informed decisions. So to start off, I know that some of you may have access to this presentation topic via audio only. For this reason, allow me to provide you with a breakdown of the items I will be presenting. First, we will begin with a brief introduction. So to start off, I know that some of you may have access to this presentation topic via audio only. For this reason, allow me to provide you with a breakdown of the items I will be presenting. First, we will begin with a brief introduction of my technical background and experience. This should hopefully assure you that I am in a position to provide you with meaningful knowledge that you can trust. We will then take a brief look at some of the key players involved when it comes to the airport and aviation industry. Who makes and enforces the rules and regulation, who establishes operational and safety standards, orders and guidelines, and who regulates the industry as a whole. We will then familiarize ourselves with the standard industry practices and the common acceptable approach that would occur in this current day in order to conceptualize, assess the impacts, and successfully lead to the implementation of final design and initial construction of a brand new modern international airport. We will then be made aware of alternative future-proofing technologies that could provide a balanced and financially sound approach. You see, in today's technological, environmental, and sustainability-focused climate, it is key to look at these emerging trends. This will afford you with the advantage and protections of being a few steps ahead. We will finally conclude with a brief summary, and I will give you a real-world experience example from my personal career to help reinforce the value of the industry's current practices and standards and why they are so important to you. Please allow me to share with you my background. My name again is Irvin Baptiste, born and raised in the Commonwealth of Dominica. Um, I am a current US licensed professional civil engineer and my engineering expertise is in airport civil infrastructure design and navigational aid systems. I have experienced designing almost everything you've seen on airports, runways, taxiways, 
the associated markings and lights. Approach lighting systems, so these are the lights that you'll typically see flashing or guiding the aircraft um, in foggy conditions down to the runway. Hangers, jet bridges, this is basically the support structure that you will see leading to the aircraft that you walk through as you board. Um, fiber optic networks, aircraft fire and rescue stations, fueling stations, airfield security checkpoints and perimeter fencing, uh, service roads, drainage, sewer and water utility infrastructure, and all the various facilities that contain the instrumentation to guide aircraft uh, to the airport and successfully land on the runway. And the list goes on. So as a civil engineer, I've designed almost everything with the exception of the passenger terminal buildings. Uh, terminal buildings are typically the role of architects um, that involve aesthetic design. I've worked for 12 years at one of the top US and global engineering firms uh, designing, constructing, rehabilitating, and improving airports. I eventually progressed from lead project engineer to senior project manager, where I've managed teams of civil, electrical, structural, and mechanical engineers, environmental scientists, and airport construction engineers as well. I also became the client consultant manager for a very unique airport client in an environmentally sensitive region, which I will tell you a bit more about at the end. Uh, a sample of airports I've worked on include Chicago O'Hare International, Boston Logan International, Chicago Midway, Atlanta Hartsville International Airport, uh, Teterboro Airport, that's where a lot of corporate jet traffic come into for the new New York region, uh, Philadelphia International Airport. And I've done many regional US and uh, municipal airports as well in the US. Some of the uh, non-US international airports and regions that I've um, consulted for and asked to be worked on include Greece, Australia, Hong Kong, Ecuador, Mumbai, India, and the United Arab Emirates. So collectively, the projects I've worked on total in excess of two billion US dollars in worth, and that's just counting the uh, US airports mostly. And finally, I've been a US FAA licensed pilot for the past 15 years. I am an FAA certified flight instructor with an instrument rating. This means I train pilots to fly without any outside visual reference and just using their displays and instruments in the cockpit to guide them from takeoff to landing on a flight. I also train pilots all the way from their student to private and commercial pilot licenses. Currently, I am a US airline pilot and I am certified to fly the modern Embraer E170, E175, E190, and E195 family of very large regional jets. Uh, these airliners carry 70 to 100 passengers, and I regularly operate them as a first officer for three major US airlines on US domestic routes and international routes from Canada all the way to Mexico, the Bahamas, and even Martinique and Guadeloupe. Uh,
Let's take a look at the hierarchy and organization of the current aviation industry regulators who provide the oversight. We'll begin from the bottom and work our way up. Surprisingly, we actually start with you. The local residents and local economy that would be impacted in both negative and positive ways by the existence of any airport in your backyard. This is important because many of today's current safety, operational and environmental standards that are used to regulate the design, construction and functioning of a large airport have stemmed from the public users and residents who share a common stake in the airport, along with the various companies that operate into and out of them. Regulations and standards for noise control, groundwater contamination, overhead airspace boundaries, minimum safe altitudes, maximum building heights, light pollution, operational times and approach and departure directions are just a few that have been shaped by public input, consensus, and studies of the impacts affected upon an airport's closest neighbors. Typically, in the US and other developed countries, bylaws would require the approval and input of a collection of town committees or a governing board of a city. As we move up to a higher level of shared public input, one would start following the rules of a state agency tasked with regulating a large sector of infrastructure grouped under the transportation category. This is typically called a State Department of Transportation. The technical guidelines and standards of such an agency are typically a more customized version of an overarching set such that they can be tailored to meet the needs of that localized area or jurisdiction while still maintaining compliance with what we call the country's aviation administrator. In the case of the US, this would be the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA for short. Each country's overarching aviation administrator sets the basic safety, operational, engineering, and environmental ground rules of how the airport should be designed, built, and run, and how the airlines should operate at those airports and within the country's airspace. A few more administrators from other countries include the European Aviation Safety Agency, or ESA, the Civil Aviation Administration of China, CAAC, and the General Civil Aviation Authority, GCAA, that I've worked with for airports in the United Arab Emirates. Finally, at the very top, the entity that establishes the global standards and regulations in collaboration with each country's or nation's aviation administrator is the International Civil Aviation Organization or ICAO. The ICAO's rules therefore tend to have more wiggle room as to what you can do. They set a base template as to how to proceed. And as you go back down the hierarchy from the national level, such as the FAA, and down to the state and local levels, the standards and rules get more strict and customized. 
So here's an example of how the industry currently works and regulates itself. A small town in the U.S. wants to build an airport because they've assessed and forecasted the economic benefit of having air travel to bring in goods and supplies more directly, increase emergency access to medical services, and profit from seasonal leisure travel and commuter traffic. In order for this project to be realized, they would have to obtain approval from and meet and follow the local standards of their town, then their State Department of Transportation, and then the FAA. Since the FAA develops their standards from the ICAOs, satisfying the FAA's requirements would inherently make your airport ICAO compatible. Until the FAA approves, no aircraft operating in the public use airspace would be allowed to use this airport. And since nearly every US registered aircraft and aircraft operator are regulated by the FAA, this requirement must be met. In other words, a US airliner or airline from most developed countries, for that matter, will not land at an airport unless that airport meets the operation specifications approved by its administrator. The other way around is true as well. An administrator of a country may not approve an airliner or airline to operate within its airspace boundaries and at its airports because that airliner failed to meet its standards. Now that we have a better understanding of who makes the rules and regulations and the flow of administrative approval and public consensus, let's take a deeper dive into the industry's current practices and common acceptable approach. To successfully realize a large modern transportation infrastructure project, such as an international airport, the following method is employed. First, conceptualize what you need and what you want. This is typically done through carefully developing a client's purpose and needs statement. The client could be a private owner, the town, the city, or the country's governing board. We then assess the current existing state and the potential impacts. This means looking at the existing financial, economic, land use, environmental, and human capital state of things, and then measuring the potential impacts on all these facets, both negative and positive, should such a project be implemented. We then model or simulate this facility as accurately as possible in order to obtain data that will help one iterate, tweak, or improve the conceptual design and evaluate the risks while developing a more accurate forecast model. We then issue a proposal for acceptance or rejection. In other words, a phase of public engagement, community discussion, and consensus in order to gain approvals to move forward. This consensus is what leads to the outcome with the least amount of negative impact and maximizes the economic benefit for all parties involved. Upon completion of these steps, along with thorough and transparent documentation, 
as well as official approvals, we move forward into final designs, contractor bidding, and construction, and eventual maintenance and operation of the new facility. Many airport projects start out small, but with the full built-out plan already developed and documented in what is called an Airport Improvement Plan, or AIP Master. This is typically a 10 to 20 year phasing plan of various expansion and upgrades to be performed during a given fiscal year. An AIP provides for a tightly monitored budget and progressive funding structure, while benefiting from having many of the initial studies and assessments already performed. The main point is that no shovels will hit the ground and nothing gets set in stone until the assessments, modeling, and proposal and acceptance phases are completed. It is not uncommon for such large projects to take three to five years of visibility and impact studies before dedicated design and construction funding sets in. The larger the project, and the more environmentally challenged or sensitive the project area is, the longer it will take. The reason for proceeding carefully comes down to the risks involved. Disruptions at such large scales tend to be irreversible and the failures expensive, easily shadowing the revenues and economic benefits that were hoped for. So for this reason, I focus primarily on the assessment stage since this is where we are or should be today. What I will now describe in general terms are some of the tasks performed during assessment. Again, in no way is this list exhaustive, but it should give you an expectation of what should be completed before acceptance, approval, design, and eventual construction. For starters, as mentioned before, we take the purpose and needs assessment and perform a cost-benefit analysis. In other words, is this venture truly worth it? This goes hand-in-hand hand with a financial risk assessment and travel demand forecast. In today's day and age, these tasks are all very much data-driven in order to develop an accurate forecast and even account for abnormal effects, such as those that could be caused by a global pandemic or significant climate events such as a Category 5 hurricane. Another task involves outside consultation. International airports are a gateway to interacting with the global community on a global scale. As such, consultation, insight, and expertise from airport and land use planners, a broad range of various engineering disciplines, legal teams, cost planners, proposals and procurement teams, and regulating bodies or transportation administrations, such as the FAA, is crucial to successful implementation and acceptance of such projects. The more technical tasks to be undertaken during the assessment stage starts from overall site selection and moves down the finer details of airport conceptual design as a viable site becomes more apparent. We begin with an environmental assessment study, or EAS, and an environmental impact study, or EIS. Typically, the EAS and EIS occur together with the EAS 
being where one gathers as much data on the existing region to be affected. This includes studies of soil, groundwater, flora, and fauna, including rare or endangered species and critical habitats, humanity, human activity, and land use. The EIS then assesses the level of disruption or disturbance to those existing interrelated systems. A noise abatement study is performed to determine how increased air traffic over sensitive areas may affect a natural habitat and populations of humans, thereby impacting their quality of life. A geotechnical study assesses how this large structure and the terrain transforming activities expected to occur during construction can impact the ground stability of the location. Before I end this presentation, I would like to mention the practice of future-proofing. When assessing the purpose and needs for such a large-scale endeavor, it is most beneficial to look at alternative solutions. These solutions do not aim to eliminate or cast aside the ultimate goal of developing a successful revenue-generating international airport. Instead, they can provide a middle ground pathway for leveraging current airline industry trends while affording more time to allocate reliable funding sources and conduct the proper assessments and studies towards developing or development of a new airport. Today's airline industry focuses on greater fuel efficiency with increased range and passenger carrying capacity. The airline's profit metric is seat per mile costs or revenue per available seat mile. Today's travelers seek direct flights with fewer stops to their destinations. This leads to lower occurrences of misconnections, lost baggage tracking, long layovers, and multiple customs and security holding points. Seamless and more direct routes reduce the operating costs for air carriers, thereby improving their bottom line opening up competitive markets and reducing ticket prices. Newer versions of modern airliners, and in particular, turbine jet aircraft engines, are paving the way for 90 to 100 plus seater aircraft that can fly across oceans, direct to the destinations, and operate into and out of airfields, with runway lengths varying from 5,000 to 8,000 feet, all while using the latest global navigation satellite system and local air augmentation systems to a high level of precision. Therefore, adapting existing support airport infrastructure while conceptualizing a new airport system through a phased approach that can provide for expansion of those facilities is a sound recommendation. Such projects are typically placed under a Capital Improvement Program or CIP. Earlier, I had promised you a case example of an airport project from my personal career. That airport had a single existing runway about 2,800 feet long and functioned as a small municipal airport which supported general aviation, medical emergency air services, as well as a base 
for a 916-seater twin-engine propeller commuter aircraft operator. In fact, some of you may know this operator in the Caribbean as Cape Air. And this is the airport where Cape Air was founded in Provincetown, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, USA. I worked very closely with the airport manager and the town as the airport's engineering consultant client manager for my company at the time. Cape Cod is a beautiful, environmentally sensitive peninsula of oceanfront property and unique landscapes. Their local economy relies heavily on leisure travel during the summer seasons for revenue. Cape Cod is also home to the Kennedys and other generations of wealthy, educated, and environmentally conscious families. When we wanted to replace and upgrade the existing airport runway and taxiway lights, remove and replace two taxiways, and upgrade the approach lighting system, all in accordance with FAA standards, on a 2,800-foot-long runway, it took our team nearly five-plus years before approvals came through. Why? We had an AIP, but these additions were new, and the town residents, through their bylaws and various committees, required our compliance with local, state, and federal environmental standards. So we did just that. We performed EAS and EIS studies, floodplain analyses, and drainage studies. I spent hours attending public meetings for the town governing board. Many items were discussed. Residents wanted to assure that the seeds in the grass restoration areas along the pavement would not attract a certain species of birds that would negatively impact a certain species of insects that were critical to a certain species of flowering plants unique to the area. They were concerned about the types of hydraulic fluids, oils, and other chemicals that would run off the construction equipment if they were parked for long periods on site during rainstorms and what the impact would be when they leach into the soil. They wanted a say in how long the construction site floodlights would stay on for night work and the lumen or brightness levels for assessing light pollution from the new high mass lights we proposed. They wanted to know even where the off-site fill came in from. We had a phased site restoration plan so involved that I worked with an outside subconsultant firm of environmental scientists who studied and selected the correct plants for restoration due to a near one-to-one -one ratio of impacted species mitigation. That means for every one of these we wipe out, we must plant one more back. The list goes on. And yet, Cape Cod maintains as one of the most beautiful, pristine, and unique places to visit in the Northeast. Their product is ecotourism. To put it into perspective, it took us four years to change a light bulb on a small existing airport in a small tourism dependent and environmentally sensitive town in the US, much less for a brand new international airport on a pristine, unspoiled Caribbean island. In summary, by pulling together their wealth, education, legal authority, and communal action, nothing could be approved without their final blessing. In the end, 
we share two common goals. We desire economic progress as a developing society, and we wish to offer the world an environmentally responsible way to see and experience the uniqueness of our natural habitats while generating revenue. In this modern day and age, we must be educated and aware of the processes and decisions that will eventually affect our way of life. I wish you all a common stake and share in the benefit of this process. And I wish you all great success with your international airport. Have a good evening. Well, thank you very much. You know, I, I hope that you agree with me that this was worth listening to. Uh, if you join me later, of course, this is this weekend interview with your host, Anthony Drago. And tonight, I'm replaying sections of a presentation that was hosted, that was put on by NJAM, NJAM being the National Joint Action Movement, which is a, a, a grouping of, of citizens of Dominica um, who are interested in moving the country forward. And they did a presentation on Saturday about the international effort that's being built in the northeast of Dominica um, over the village of Wesley. I'm not going to take a, a lot of time talking because I want to play one more clip for you. And I'm and I'm going to post a link to the entire presentation on this weekend interview Facebook page. So you can go there and listen to it. It's worth listening to. But what struck me was how the community, so the people of Dominica and specifically people of Wesley, how central it is to consult with them because they are the ones who's going to be directly affected by the airport. They're either going to lose their property or they're going to be a lot of noise going overhead or whatever is that airport is ever built. And also how involved it is to do the studies required for international airport. And yet we're hearing about a 172 page report. We're hearing about the design that's already done. We're hearing about this funding and that funding. And we don't see any of those reports in the, in the public. There's so many aspects. There's the ocean. There are three rivers, I think, that's affected. There's all the different species of trees and animals and everything that lives in there. There are folks who farm that land for generations. There are people who are losing their homes. So this last shorter clip I'm going to play is from um, Pastor Robin. And he's putting into perspective the feeling on the ground of the people in Wesley, upon whom this um, international airport is superimposed. We'll end up going a little bit over, but bear with me, I think um, it's important. So let's listen to that last clip. I'm grateful to be sitting here today. And uh, I believe I'm speaking on behalf of my community. I was born and bred in Wesley, a proud son of the son of Wesley. And went to school in Wesley, attended the Dominica Grammar School, went on to study theology. My, my focus is in theology, as a matter of fact. I am one of the pastors in the community. I pastor the Wesley Pentecostal Church. Um, after having lived in the US uh, for 20 years, been involved in ministry work in and real estate investment uh, felt the need to return to my homeland to be a part of the building process, uh, especially in my community. You know, sitting here today, uh, 
I feel very proud, and, and I, I just wanted to mention the fact that Wilworth is my younger brother, and, and listening this afternoon, I felt very proud to call him my younger brother. Uh, he, I think he was excellent in his presentation, and I could see Mr. David smiling back there, because Mr. David is, uh, was his principal um, when Wilworth went to school. But uh, I don't want to take much time you know, discussing that. My, my role here today is is to talk about the, the socio-economic impact on Wesley. Uh, I do want our audience to, to take into consideration that the Wesley people have already given up over 1,000 acres of land uh, previous to this set of lands being acquired. So in effect, the Wesley community has given up close to 1,500 acres of the lands, most of that being agricultural lands. And Wesley being in an agricultural community, you would imagine that that would have a serious adverse impact on the livelihood and the economic life of a community when you take away the, the, the substance really of that community. Uh, the lands which were recently acquired in my mind were, were taken under duress and, and were taken forcefully without any kind of consultation with the people. As a matter of fact, the, the first time the people became aware that the lands were gone is when we held the meeting. And I'm here representing our organization, we do the Western Development Organization that we put together, primarily to look into ways to enhance our community. And, and these lands were taken in the secrecy of night, without consultation with our people. And, and, and in my mind, what is really happening here, uh, folks, as we, as we get a mindset wrapped around this, is, is the fact that the Wesley community is one of the communities in Dominica that was foremost, uh, was a forerunner of land purchase when, the, when the, um, the plantations around us became available for sale. Our people with an innovative mind went in to purchase these lands and they made Wesley an economic stability in the nation of Dominica. As a matter of fact, there were people who came from several areas around Dominica to settle in Wesley, to find employment. Wesley was a very thriving community. And as you well imagine, taking away the lands of the people and exchanging that for money is, is really a very sad, sad situation because money is, is just the, is a medium of exchange. It changes with inflation. Land is value and it represents wealth. And when you take away the wealth of a people, you really diminish them. And we, we have found ourselves in Wesley, after that has happened, as squatters, squatters on lands that were purchased mostly by our parents. So we are now at the mercy of a system that is offering us way below the value of what our lands are worth and have made us basically 
as squatters or tenants. And we see how uh, this administration deals with people who they consider to be squatters. When just a few weeks ago, a gentleman who goes to a church had his plantation of over 2,000 mats of, of plantains and over 1,000 tanyas mowed down by a bulldozer. And you would imagine, those of you who are farmers, you understand that if you have 2,000 plants of plantains and half of that is already bunched and ready to be harvested, you would have probably about six plants around each of those planting plants. So that would mean that 2,000 times six and over 12,000 plants, planting suckers, we call them in Westlake, was destroyed by this administration. How could that be fear to the people of Wesley? How could, how could our representative, that is the Minister of Agriculture, preside over a situation like this that is really destroying the economic stability of this community and making our people poorer in exchange? We, we, then, we then look at the fact that the, the lands that were taken, like we said, in the secrecy of night, without any discussions with the people. As a matter of fact, this administration is yet to keep a public meeting in my community. We have not had a public meeting where every person in Wesley is in, was invited or is invited and they can discuss and ask questions to this administration. Outside of that, they have met with people who, who support the idea and they met secretly with these people and whatever decisions that were made in those times were not, were not known to the general public. And I believe that's a travesty. That is not something that should happen in a community that has given up so much. If we have already given up over a thousand acres of our lands, and you're now coming and taking another 411 acres of all lands. What is going to happen now when, when, uh, when these lands are transferred into the hands of people who are not from Wesley? And this development, they say this development takes place. The lands that were taken from Wesley, probably in the range of 50 to 60, 100,000, they're going to be worth way more in value. And we would have remove the people of Wesley from the process of from having the ability to participate in the economic growth around something that they were the ones who made the biggest sacrifice. And that for me is the reason why people say to me, why are you getting involved as a minister of the gospel? That is one of the reasons why I'm getting involved because I believe if I stayed silent, I would not be in right standing with my conscience to see those things happen in my community and not speak out against it. And, and you see, if the, if the system was different and if things were not done in a way that is going to take up a significant part of this community, because we're talking about, we're talking about a displacement of business. We're talking about a displacement of over 70 homes. We're talking about uh, farmers losing their lands. 
We're talking about our people not having the ability to go to the bank and approach the bank to get a loan. And that is from since March of last year. I know this because I, I am aware of, of somebody who is specifically affected by this. They went to the bank and the bank says, we cannot use your land as collateral because it no longer belongs to you. So the government has taken the land from the people. We cannot use it as collateral to, to advance ourselves economically, to send our children to school, or, or to, to put a piece in a, a, an addition to our home, or to, to use it for the cultivation of our culture. We cannot do that because we do not have access to it. It does not belong to us anymore. Why at the same time, we have not been paid. We have not been compensated. And those who are compensated, and we don't, we, don't, we don't even know how many of those there, were not compensated effectively in relation to what these lands are valued. And, and like I said before, there is a huge difference between money and wealth. A lot of people think that money is what they should pursue. But wealth is way more important. Wealth is something you can pass on to your generation. And I was saying somebody just a couple of days ago that a lot of these lands that we have in Western are lands which we inherited from our parents and they in turn inherited from their parents. And that is, this is wealth. This is transferred wealth. But when you take away the wealth or the basis of wealth from a people and you leave them without, you are really discrediting these people. And you're really taking away the potential from advancement, for advancement from, from these people. That is, that to me is, is very, very wicked. And I, yes, I said wicked. It is wicked. It's a wicked approach because it does not take into consideration the livelihood and the importance of the people. And, and the speakers before me did, did, um, did mention that and alluded to that, that there was no, there was no consultation. There was no connection with the people. And if you're going to do something that affects people directly, I believe the basis of the buck should stop with us in Wesley. We should have a major role to play, a very significant role to play in, in, this, whole, in this whole process. So, so that, is, that is very important. Secondly, one of the things I've seen, and I, I, live, I live here in the community. Like I said, I've, I've been in the US for 20 years, moved back. Almost, almost 10 years ago, I've been living here in Westlake, moved back to this community. One of the things I've seen is the, is the partisan approach, the way that this thing was approached, in that they approached people secretly. And just a few people, and the, the meetings were held, the meeting were, was held in a place that I believe is politicized. It's the home of one of the former representatives of this area. And to me, that is further polarizing our community. It is causing a rift in the community which is already divided. And what we have found over time since we started educating the people, and I'm very, very thankful for what is happening here today, because I believe this is major education that is going forth and is enlightening a lot of people that are listening in on this on this discussion here this afternoon. 
You know, but one of the things we have seen is because they have not approached this thing in, in a proper way, people are not giving air to reason. They are not allowing reason to take effect in the community. And that any time you try to speak from a civic, reasonable platform, there are those who feel that it's their duty to disrupt it. Because, listen, education is power. People are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And if you don't know, what you don't know become the biggest destruction in your life. And, and I, I'm very, very happy for what we're doing here this afternoon. You know, we're looking also at, a, at the planned relocation for our residents. We have business places that is directly affected by this. And business places that were just recently constructed. And I would imagine that if these places were constructed, they would have had, uh, they would have had, excuse me, I, I'm getting a little power loss here. So let me, let me, let me just get my stuff powered up. The people, the people who affected directly, business ones, and I know one of them who just recently built last year, this man would have had approval from housing. Why would you approve somebody to build a business and then turn around in less than one year and, and, and take it away from him? And, and then you want to move him to an area that is undeveloped, away from his customers. There's, there, there's no infrastructure put in place. There's no telephone systems. There's no running water. There is no electricity. There, you know, none of those things are in place. And yet you're telling us that you're going to start construction in the first quarter of 2021. And you're not giving any consideration to people who have the business in the direct path. There are people who are losing their homes. There are people who have lived in their homes for generations, families, for generations. I spoke to a gentleman uh, who is an elderly man. He's in his 80s. And he doesn't have any idea what he's going to do. They're taking his house. And this man came to me almost with tears in his eyes. And he's asking, what do we do? There's, a, there's an elderly woman who came. She came all the way to, to my house. And she wanted to see me. She said, I want to talk to you. I don't know what to do. I'm being forced to sign. And I don't know because they said to me, if you don't sign, we will just put the money in the account for you. So people are held at a gunpoint, so to speak, to make them submit to something which I believe is going to be very destructive for our community. And, and that, that, to me, it sends a very strong signal of what the intentions of the people who are driving this agenda is. And I believe I'm making an appeal here today to, to the people of this community, to the people who were born and bred in this community, who were educated from the economics of this community, that have gone on to live in other places, to stand up and to rally for the protection of Wesley. Because I believe if we allow this to continue, we are going to have a community that is non-existent. I was talking to a gentleman just recently, and, and 
And he was saying to me, I want to have a discussion with you. Because he addressed me as, as, a, as the pastor who is causing the, the trouble. Yes, and it's a good kind of trouble. And I'm happy to be causing that kind of trouble if it's enlightening my people. And, and so we have this conversation. He says to me, uh, I understand that, that uh, a tunnel is going to be built through, through Wesley. That's going to go under the airfield. I said, sir, well, I live, I live in the U.S. and I've been through many tunnels. And, and I know and I understand that if you're going to put a tunnel through, then you cannot start the tunnel. He said, you, you cannot start the tunnel at the entrance or the line of that airfield. You would have to take it way back. And he laughingly said to me, I believe that tunnel might even start all the way in Maribyrn. Which, which brings us to the conclusion that the acquisition of lands is not yet over, is not completed. If we are talking about putting a tunnel in, then we are also talking about acquiring more lands. And if more lands are acquired, that is going to mean another significant portion of our community will go up in this project. And our people are not the ones who stand to benefit from it. Because if you exchange it, and I've heard, I've heard it said that people are going to get two and three times more land than they have presently. Well, I mean, looking at this from face value, you may think, wow, this is great. But no, it's not great. Because if you take lands away from me, in, in, a, in a high uh, volume area, high traffic area, in an area that is close to the beach, it does not carry the same value as lands that are agricultural in a rural part of the community. And in real estate, we learn location, location, location. It's all about location. So even if you give me three times the amount of land that I have, but I'm placed in an area where that portion does not carry the same value. Understanding too, that also the lands you are taking from me, if you develop around those lands, those lands that you take from me, that you are now going to pass on to the people that are supporting your program, this land is going to be worth way more in value than what you took it from. So, you're phasing me out of the economic process. You're cutting me off as a stakeholder. I cannot now come in and invest in, in things like hotels or, or, in, or in a marina or, in, or, or to participate in, say, in a golf course. You, you are phasing me out of the picture, and I'm the one that's making the biggest sacrifice. So for me, for me, that is enough reason to stand up and to speak out on behalf of my community. You know, there's a lot more that, that can be said, but I know there are other speakers, uh, and I don't want to take up much more of the time because I know some of the speakers have gone over a little bit, uh, and we want, we want to hear from everybody. But, but I'm calling and I'm making an appeal to our people that are out there in the diaspora, and even locally, for us to come together, and after this meeting, to look into ways that we can force the hand of this government to stop the destruction of our community. Because if we allow this to happen, I believe that we in this generation have failed the people that are coming behind us. And I will not let my name go down 
as one of those who did not stand up and who did not speak out on behalf of my community. And when I'm long gone, when I'm long gone from the scene, I want my name to be remembered as one of the freedom fighters who stood up on behalf of the salvation of this community. I thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Um, I hope you enjoy this whole presentation that I put together for you. As I said, I'm going to put the link for the entire um, event that took place on Saturday. It was it was an event around the, the international airport that um, that that the administration is proposing for the Wesley area, uh, and the whole takeaway I have from this thing is that the amount of planning and the amount of preparation that needs to be done, even to get to a stage where you know where the airport is going to be, has not been done, and that that raises the question of what exactly is the intention that a land's already acquired and, and the folks land was acquired without consultation they found out that their land was acquired when they went to some meeting that was organized by by widow wesley development organization so the government didn't come to them with a proposal they've got they didn't have yeah he said they didn't have a public meeting a true public meeting where everybody is invited they pick and choose who they invite. And, and so the people of Wesley are being challenged um, to really be able to stand up for, for their right to enjoy their property in spite of the government's um, privilege to exercise eminent domain. And those, you know, you're going to be, you, my listeners, are going to be the best educated listeners around you're going to understand all the ins and outs of this international effort so we can have intelligent conversations we can talk to our folks back home we can galvanize support because at the end of the day we can talk we can talk we can talk but sooner or later we have to be able to step up and support and um we probably need some legal representation to really be able to let your let the voices of the people be heard we have to be willing to support that and contribute to that so this has been episode four of the 11th season of This Week in Interview. And I thank you so much for, for listening. I want to thank all the, the staff and producers at TDN Radio. And um, those of you who carried it live and the interaction on Facebook um, was, was, was also made it enjoyable. So look out for the link on This Week in Interview Facebook page. I plan to listen to the entire presentation. And uh, we will do this again next week, Wednesday. Um, I want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Good night. <laughs>